Hello and welcome to the Flint podcast, Geopolitics for Business. This is Flint's new monthly podcast where we explore the intersection of geopolitics and business. I'm your host, François-Joseph Chichan, director here at Flint and former French diplomat. In this podcast series, we will be introducing experts from, our, from across our network to discuss geopolitical themes affecting businesses and investors. Our objective is to understand how big picture political change affects specific sectors and ultimately the strategic choices facing corporates and investors. We will cover a range of issues from analyzing international events to looking at the geopolitics of key sectors such as tech, health, energy or financial services. Today, we'll be discussing the outcomes of the NATO summit that was held on Tuesday and Wednesday this week in Vilnius, Lithuania. And for this episode, I'm joined by Sir Simon Fraser, Flint Managing Partner and former head of the UK Foreign Office and Diplomatic Service, and Sir Julian King, Specialist Partner and the last British EU Commissioner. We'll discuss the significance of this year's NATO summit and the challenges and uncertainties facing the alliance. And this episode will last around 20 minutes. So let's start right away with, with you, Julian. NATO has gained a renewed sense of purpose since the, since the start of the war in Ukraine. Uh, help us to put things into perspective. And can you give us a sense of how significant this year's summit was and what, what stood out for, for you? Uh, well, thanks, François Joseph. You, you could say this is the latest in a series of significant NATO summits. And indeed, next year, uh, there'll be the 75th anniversary uh, summit in, in the U.S., But what's really changed, what's turbocharged NATO's role and significance uh, is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, after a, a, a focus over recent decades on expeditionary missions, and more recently, uh, a growing debate about how best to counter new security challenges, including, including from China, uh, Russia's invasion uh, reminded us all, especially in Europe, in the West, that core territorial defense and security are key state priorities, I mean, absolutely top priorities for our, for our governments. So after over 500 days of war in Ukraine, the, the NATO summit was about how uh, the NATO allies and their like-minded partners proposed to, to deal with that situation, to step up to that reality. Uh, how are they going about strengthening NATO, including uh, taking in new members? Uh, Finland, of course, and, and now soon Sweden. Uh, what are they going to do to tackle wider security challenges, whether from new weapons, new technologies, or, or in different geographies like the Indo-Pacific? What are they willing, what can they afford to do to reinforce core defense and, and deterrence, including through boosting defense investment and building a sustainable defense industrial base? Now, all of these are, are, are big, politically challenging issues. Before you get to the uh, detail around Ukraine, Russia has, has pushed defense and security right up the agenda. Uh, there's much talk of a, of a step change in defense spending. I mean, Germany have agreed to invest an extra 100 billion, France to increase their defense budget 40%, Poland to double theirs. But last year, in fact, only seven of the NATO countries met the 2% of GDP uh, defense spend. We're, we're in, all of us, uh, an era of, of, of increasingly spare, of scarce resource and, and of inflation. So this is, this is a challenge. And there's a long way to go, especially for the Europeans. If you look over the last 20 years to 2021, European NATO allies increased defense spending by around 25%. But compare that with the US, 
of almost 70%, Russia, 190%, China, almost 600%. So there are likely to be some some difficult political decisions around priorities ahead for, for governments, especially in the West. And the private sector are looking for a lead. They want, not unnaturally, greater clarity on long-term defence budgets if they're going to make the kind of investments in defence capabilities that are required. So that's that's some of the issues, I think, before we come to Ukraine. François Joseph. Thanks, Julian. Yeah, let's dig, let's dig a bit deeper into the, what the summit meant for, for men for the war in Ukraine. Um, I mean, a lot of the, the discussions before and during the summits revolved around Ukraine's accession to the alliance. But was this, according to you, ever a realistic prospect? And what's the significance of the guarantees that Ukraine's um, obtained from individual NATO countries? So, uh, in my view, this was a good summit for Ukraine, e even if they didn't get everything they would have wanted, indeed asked for, which, as we've seen in the media, has led to some mixed political uh, messaging. What they did get uh, was a clear commitment, a reaffirmation of the commitment that Ukraine's place is in NATO as part of the Western NATO family. They didn't get a firm timeline or, or date for, for, for joining. But in what was intended as a, a positive message, they were told that their accession process would be political, not technical or bureaucratic with a load of hoops to jump through. But the language that was used around an invitation when agreed and conditions met, I think really pointed to the underlying political reality that there's a live conflict in Ukraine and a number of allies, notably the US, also Germany, some others, do not want a, a direct NATO confrontation with Russia. The alliance also reaffirmed its collective commitment to support Ukraine, including through a new Ukraine-NATO council, which will deal with a whole range of issues, including um, sharing analysis and intelligence and talking about uh, defense industry and capability cooperation. And then, in addition, key members uh, through the G7 uh, reaffirmed their commitment to long-term support and assistance to Ukraine with quite a long list of, of military capabilities that they would provide, uh, training and funding. Uh, just before the summit, uh, President Biden made a comparison with the support the US gives uh, in law uh, to Israel to maintain a qualitative military edge over its neighbors. So these together are, are important commitments that, that Russia will take seriously. Uh, in practice, the key will be, and Russia will be watching this closely, how these commitments are delivered over the months ahead and, and possibly beyond that. Politically, I think, following the summit, uh, the Allies and Ukraine's leadership will want to find a way of showing a, a united front, recognizing these positive steps. François Joseph. Thanks, Julian. Um, let me let me come come to you now, Simon. Uh, as Julian said, Ukraine has strengthened NATO, uh, but I think there are still difficult questions about the future of the alliance. And the subtext of of many of the discussions during the summit was the uncertainties around the U.S. commitment to European security. Uh, so, will European countries still be able to rely on the U.S. for their security in the medium to long term? Well, thanks. I think the answer to that question basically is yes because in the end, the fundamental alignment of interests carries the day, even when there are disagreements. NATO has stood the test of time, 
But of course, we can't take that for granted and we have to keep working at it. Uh, President Biden, very interestingly, I mean, he was criticised a lot for his uh, actions in withdrawing from Afghanistan. But on the other side of that, he has made NATO much stronger and he has restored the relationships between Western allies that were frankly damaged under President Trump. And he's also built new partnerships in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, and so I do think that President Biden deserves credit for this. And the Europeans on their side are seen, I think, by the Americans to be taking the security challenges more seriously, though there's certainly a lot more to be done on that, as Julian has mentioned, in relation particularly to defence spending. Having said all that, of course, the US election is coming and Trump or someone with a similar worldview might prevail next year. And that could be very damaging for NATO unity, or at least for confidence within the alliance. For example, I think the Europeans would be concerned that President Trump uh, might pursue a settlement with Russia uh, without involving European allies, uh, and that would be uh, very difficult. We also have to remember that there are divisions within Europe between the Eastern members of the alliance and some of the more military significant larger players. And Germany, France and the UK don't see eye to eye on all things. For example, their positioning is different on Ukraine membership. And the attitude of Germany, given the geography of Europe, uh, will as ever be pivotal and is sometimes seen to be a bit ambivalent. Behind all this, let me just say one last thing. The big strategic problem to bear in mind as we think about European security is the need not only to deal with the Ukraine issue, but to manage a future relationship with Russia. And I don't think enough thought is being given to this. So if you allow Ukraine into NATO or into the EU, that would inevitably further complicate the Russia relationship unless there is by that time, a very different sort of regime in Moscow, which I think is unlikely. So we need to think more about how, over time, we address the underlying threat that Russia is now posing for European security. Thanks, Simon. So one of the key questions as well for the future, for the future of the alliance is, is China. And this was extensively discussed during the summit. And interestingly, the Japanese prime minister um, attended the summit as well. Um, the US and others seem to be pushing NATO to turn its focus on Asia and China. Uh, can you explain what are the political drivers behind this? Well, that's definitely the case. But uh, we have to remember that NATO is a North Atlantic organisation. And the key articles that underlie the NATO alliance relate to territorial defence of Europe. And that is not going to change. And indeed, President Putin has reminded us all why it still matters. And that is part of the motivation that's lain behind the recent reinforcement of European solidarity, of NATO solidarity. But the big geostrategic issue is not Russia. It is the US-China relationship. And this is what preoccupies Washington, as you say. And NATO allies who depend on the US for their security in Europe do need to show that they understand and are relevant to that agenda. Uh, that can be done at the national level through national defence policies, but it is reasonable to expect some collective response to a changed strategic context. Uh, and NATO has moved cautiously 
in this direction over the last year or so, but the ability of most NATO allies to make a significant military difference in Asia, let's face it, is small. And against that also, it's not useful if we appear to have NATO ganging up on China in a new sort of collective geostrategic positioning. After all, this is not yet a formal Cold War between the US and China. It's a different sort of confrontation. Um, So when we think about building security relationships in the Asia-Pacific region with Japan, with Australia, with Korea, and with others, it's going to be important to keep these different factors in balance. Thanks, Simon. Um, Let me go back to you, Julian, to discuss um, a little bit about the personal change that we have seen during the summit, um, because the leadership of the alliance clearly plays an important role in driving the agenda forward and all of the issues we just discussed. So Stoltenberg, as the Secretary General, has been confirmed for one more year. Uh, What is your interpretation of this extension of his term? And can you shed some light on the politics around the appointment of the Secretary General? And and who are the likely contenders to succeed him uh, next year? Uh, Right. Well, NATO is uh, a political alliance. And as as Simon's just said, the US is, um, at the very least, uh, prima inter pares there. But the alliance works best uh, when there's a a shared sense of of purpose. Now, that could be driven by external events, as we've been discussing. Russia's invasion of of Ukraine is is definitely driving uh, that sense of common purpose. But uh, it can also be helped by um, clear, purposeful, skillful leadership. And Stoltenberg, I think everybody agrees, has, has provided that. Uh, through the difficult times with President Trump, as well as during this war, uh, he's going to be he's going to be tough to replace. Uh, but he can't go on indefinitely. None of the names that were mentioned earlier this year uh, worked for for various uh, different reasons. Uh, but basically, you need to be able to get all allies on board, and, and none of those names could. So we're waiting for for new candidates to emerge, uh, and there's uh, discussion about people who might come free uh, after elections, uh, possibly Sanchez from Spain, Ruta from the Netherlands, or as a result of a bit of US uh, arm twisting. There's quite a lot of speculation that the uh, US would like the current commission president, von der Leyen, to, to go over to, to NATO. Uh, but none of those moves uh, would be straightforward. Uh, none of those people have said that they uh, uh, definitely want the job, that they're in the running. Although I do notice that von der Leyen was was quite active uh, in in the media around this recent summit. Uh, So uh, it's going to take a little bit of time to sort this out. It's a big job, uh, not least now there's a war going on. Uh, I think that it will need to be filled. The decision will need to be taken under this US administration. So what Biden thinks, what Biden wants will be a key factor. François Joseph. Thanks, Julian. So, Simon, let me turn to you to wrap up our discussion um, uh, and discuss a little bit about the impacts that all of these trends and issues have on uh, businesses and investors. I mean, all of these issues can seem a bit far away from direct economic and business interest. But in fact, I think it's quite the opposite. And defense and security debates increasingly shape the policy debates in many areas. So can you tell us um, how the political trends we have uh, seen unfold during the summit are affecting business and, and investors? 
Yes, uh, this is an important point. And I think the underlying issue for me is that geopolitics, uh, despite the sort of hard military aspects of NATO, geopolitics is increasingly being expressed through economic means, particularly in relation to the US-China question. Uh, And that's because the major players are economically interconnected in a way that's very different from, for example, the relationship between the US and the USSR during the Cold War. We have here uh, still an integrated global economy. Indeed, US trade with China is in fact in most sectors continuing to grow. But the issue, therefore, is that sanctions and export controls and investment screening and uh, curbs on technology transfer and management of supply chains, all these are the new playbook, if you like, of geopolitical decision making. Also, subsidies and support for strategic national capabilities through more interventionist industrial policy that often has strong national preference in it. And that creates a growing web of measures that businesses and investors have to navigate in making commercial choices. Uh, And you you could say this is putting business really on the front line of geopolitics in, in a new way. Economic decoupling, people talk about that uh, in relation to the US and China. And I think that that, in an extreme sense, is really neither possible nor desirable. Uh, And it would, if we did it, have catastrophic economic effects for all of us. But this concept of economic de-risking of these relationships, I think, is a more sensible one. The question now is, If we align behind that, as the G7 and NATO, I think, are doing, what does it really mean in practice? Uh, There's an awful lot of work to do on agreeing the boundaries uh, of what is acceptable and correct in terms of controlling international economic relationships. And businesses need a voice in those debates. I think that's a very important uh, thing that governments have to understand. One specific angle of all this, of course, is defence spending, which, as Julian has pointed out, is rising. Uh, And also the structure of defence spending will change. So new relationships and new priorities will affect industry and the structure of industry. For example, the AUKUS programme between the US, the UK and Australia, or new fighter jet cooperation with Japan. These are all things that have direct and indirect Uh, effects on businesses, which I think will increase in the coming years. Thanks a lot, Simon. So we are going to leave it there for now, but uh, our Flint geopolitical team will continue to follow events and analyze what they mean for business. If you have any questions or would like to dig deeper into one of the issues we've raised today, please get in touch. Um, And I would like to thank our two speakers, Simon Fraser and Julie for joining us today. And that concludes the first episode of Flint podcast, Geopolitics for Business. Don't forget to subscribe and join us for our next episode where we will discuss the BRICS summit at the end of August, which will gather Brazil, Russia, India and China and South Africa. So after having discussed the West and NATO today, next month we will look at how the rest of the world and how these countries position themselves on the big geopolitical challenges and how the fragmentation of geopolitics is leading to a more uncertain environment for business. Thank you all for joining. We hope you found today's discussion discussion insightful and valuable. Goodbye for now.